and uh, we're going to spend some time tonight, and uh, if you think that our uh, politicians uh, are bad, uh, I'll kind of open up the window a little bit, and you'll see what kind of politicians that uh, Paul had to deal with, and uh, <clears throat> so let's start in Acts chapter, uh, I'll tell you what, I've got a just a portion here from the message, which is a, uh, it's more of a paraphrase than it is a translation. It was written by Eugene Peterson, and I know it has its share of critics. Uh, at the same time, it's sort of like the Living Bible that was written back in the uh, 70s. There are, are things that when you read it, that it can kind of stimulate your, your mind a little bit. And so I'm going to read a portion of that, Acts 24 verses 22 through 26, and then we'll kind of uh, work in through uh, some of uh, the rest of the lesson as it, as it unfolds. But, but here's what he writes, and I kind of like that, what he said. He said, Felix Shilly Shallied. And uh, have you ever met somebody maybe that was like that? Uh, but it says he Shilly Shallied. He knew far more about the way and he let on and could have settled the case then and there. But uncertain of his best move politically, he played for time. When Captain Lysias comes down, I'll decide your case. And he gave orders to the centurion to keep Paul in custody, but to more or less give him the run of the place and not prevent his friends from helping him. A few days later, Felix and his wife Drusilla who was Jewish, sent for Paul and listened to him talk about a life of believing in Jesus Christ. And as Paul continued to insist on right relations with God and his people about a life of moral discipline and the coming judgment, Felix felt things getting a little too close for comfort and dismissed him. That's enough for today. I'll call you back when it's convenient. At the same time, he was secretly hoping that Paul would offer him a substantial bride, and these conversations were repeated frequently. Now, I remember um, whenever I was in Bible college, Brother Griffin preached a message about Felix and about Festus and about Agrippa, and uh, it kind of has stuck with me all these years that whenever... The Bible talks about uh, Felix. It says that he called, he wanted him to come back uh, for a more convenient season. And uh, Brother Griffin titled that, Not Now, Maybe Later. And uh, I think probably all of us have met people that you tried to witness to, and they, they had that attitude. They said, we'll, I'll get you back when it's more convenient and you never had the opportunity. And so Felix was in that category of not now, maybe later. The next guy that comes along, his name was Festus. He's the one that jumped up and looked at Paul and told Paul, he said, Paul, much learning hath made thee mad. And um, so um, his process was um, maybe at the part um, of, I don't want this message at all. And then Agrippa, the third man, and you remember what Agrippa said to Paul. He said, almost, 
thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And we've all we've met we've met people that fall into all three of those categories. Not now, maybe later, not at all. Almost you persuaded me. And yet those are the three, and Brother Griffin preached that message in chapel called Three Fatal Mistakes. And I think that probably sums up uh, probably the message for a lot of people uh, in their life that whenever they are presented with the gospel or they're convicted of their sin, then they have a tendency to fall into one uh, of those categories. And so I'm going to spend a little bit of time tonight talking about uh, Felix before we get into Paul's actual defense. And he's going to have to stand against a very gifted, uh, sly-tongued orator by the name of Tertullus. Uh, but, but who was Felix? Well, Felix was a man that <clears throat> he was a... He was a a favorite of the emperor by the name of Claudius. And then later on, he would become a friend or favorite, rather, of Nero. And the connection was, was he had a brother named Paulus. And Paulus was actually at Rome. He worked in the courts there with, um, with, with all of those high officials. And so what he did was he managed to leverage position... Uh, for his brother, and that's how Felix ended up there in Caesarea. Now, I've got a map on the next page there for you. Caesarea was somewhere around 60 miles or so from, uh, from, from Jerusalem. And uh, so I'm sorry for the confusion on the notes. It stamped, stapled it in the bottom wrong corner. That was the machine that did that for me, so forgive me for that. Uh, that was Office Depot trying to... So for all you folks that are, are uh, mind all your P's and Q's and cross your I's or dot your I's and cross your T's, I don't let, try not to let that staple down in that bottom corner get you all discombobulated. Uh, <clears throat> but on that next page there, you, you see where that the distance from Jerusalem to Caesarea was about 60 miles. Caesarea was a coastal town. It was a place kind of, I guess you could say, similar to Panama City. Uh, or Destin in that area, kind of a resort area. It's a very nice town. And so what Paulus did was he leveraged for his brother to end up being, uh, that's where the palace was. And so whenever Paul was transported from Jerusalem, remember it was an overnight trip, took him about halfway, and then they took him the rest of the way and got him to Caesarea. Uh, he got there at that place, and it was a plush, it was a plush assignment. The problem with Felix was, was that Felix was a very cruel and a very harsh ruler there in uh, that area. And a lot of times you can read uh, some, of these, some of these fellows, Josephus, you may have heard, I'm sure you've heard of him, but another man by the name of Tacitus. And then there's another writer whose name is Suetonius. And uh, when you start looking at what these, these men write about, they were historians of a sort and read some of their writings and then make some comparisons to what you find in biblical history, it's really what it does is it authenticates the Bible. Not that the Bible needs any help. But what these what these men do is whenever they write these things about biblical times, then what it does is it helps us to see that that scripture is is very accurate in some of its uh, in, well I'll just say it's inerrant. 
And, uh, and so these men write about uh, this particular man whose name uh, was Felix. And uh, there was a group of roving bandits that worked there in those times. And uh, these men were cruel. You remember the parable that the Lord told about the Good Samaritan and about how that the man was on his way and he got there on his, on his way between Jericho and Jerusalem and, and ended up getting half beat to death and the Good Samaritan comes along to help him. That was the kind of roving bands of bandits <clears throat> that would attack them. But there was another group of men uh, that they were called the Sicarii. And uh, it was almost like a, a sort of a mafia bunch. And uh, these guys were hired assassins. And one of the things that made these guys unique from all of the rest of those other uh, bands was that they had these daggers that every one of those men that was working in that either hand, left hand, right hand, they were very deadly uh, with the work of those daggers. And so there was a high priest that got crossways with, with Felix, and uh, his name was Jonathan. And so what Felix did was Felix just decided he was going to kill that high priest. And so he got that group of, of assassins, and they ended up killing uh, Jonathan there. And so, so all of that just kind of was a, a, a little bit of turmoil uh, that was there, and, and a lot of times in these areas where these rulers were ruling, uh, if there became like a revolt or became civil unrest, it would get back to Rome, and what the Roman emperors would do is they would pull these men back and bring them back to Rome to give an answer. It's like, what are, you, what are you doing? We want to try to, you know, we want to get taxes from these people. We want these people to serve uh, Rome, we want them uh, to be citizens as best as we can allow them uh, to be. And of course, they certainly had the Roman army there, but, but the Romans really wanted to incorporate and not have a lot of chaos in those provinces where that those guys were at. But Felix, ambitious, treacherous, corrupt. Uh, in fact, the girl that he married, I say girl, Drusilla, she was 16 years old. Uh, she was already previously married, and, and Felix managed to entice her away from uh, her husband. The challenge, or I say challenge, the part about Drusilla was, was that she was a Jew. And so whenever Paul began to talk about the Lord and talk about Scripture, there were things that she heard him say that resonated with her, and she believed them. So you can imagine that whenever she was hearing these things, that later on, whenever Paul was gone, that she would start talking to Felix about this. And she would say, Felix, these things that this man is telling us, there is some truth to what he is having to say. Now, when we read uh, Eugene Peterson's part, he talked about, he said that the moral disciplines of a, a just a clean life and in the coming judgment, Drusilla was very much aware of what the Old Testament law had to say. So she would go and talk to Felix about that. That's where you get into the part where that Isaiah says that the word is not going to return void. That's why that whenever we come to the house of the Lord, and I, I pray this regularly for myself, and I pray this for our congregation at large, is that whenever the word comes forth, that it finds good ground 
And as Paul says, that the word has free course. And so whenever there are things that, that you read or that you read in the word or things that, that you may hear uh, being preached or taught, that those things settle in to your heart and into your spirit because I want to have a fruitful life. I want those things to grow in my heart and in my spirit. So she would go home. She would talk to Felix. And I, you can only wonder how many times that, that Felix laid awake at night considering some of these things that the Apostle Paul was talking to him about because he was there for a period of time and Felix would bring him in privately so that there would be private uh, conversations that, uh, that they would take place. And then later on after he got back uh, to Rome, uh, he ended up divorcing Drusilla and he married the granddaughter of Antony and uh, Cleopatra. And so you can just see again that the, that the immorality and the wickedness and the political corruption uh, it is not something that's new now. It, it's always been going on. And you've heard that statement that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And there is some matter to that. And so whenever Felix uh, began to entertain that, and so the political leaders of that day was very much in behind uh, some of the political or some of the persecution uh, that took place there in uh, the early church. I don't know if you ever even give it thought. Uh, I hope you do. But to give consideration what is happening to, to believers and Christians around the world that are under oppressive political rule. And uh, we think about Middle Eastern countries. We think about Iran. There are things that sometimes leaks out, things that leaks out of North Korea where that, that there are small groups and bodies of believers that are there. We obviously know about the house church movement. Uh, that is there in uh, China and a book that I a profound book probably one of the top 25 books that I've read in my lifetime was the book uh, that Randy Alcorn wrote called Safely Home where he talked about tells a story about some of the house church things that goes on and again I mentioned this last week um, that, that I, I'm, I'm concerned at times that we're too comfortable as an American church, and uh, it's hot in here right now, isn't it? Is it warm? Y'all warm? All the old folks are just right, and the young folks are warm. Uh, and it's too loud. It's not loud enough. It's too bright. It's not bright enough. It's you. You. You get what I'm saying? There. There are people in this world. They would trade places with you at the snap of a finger to be able to come in and sit down and be involved in what you're involved in right now. And I, and I, I pray that that does not escape our mind. I, I, I pray that when you walk in this place uh, or that when you live your life, uh, that there is a part where you, you've realized that I'm trading my time and, and I want to trade my time for things that, that really matter. Uh, because again, the Christian church at large is being widely persecuted uh, throughout our, our world. And uh, I pray, I don't know, we can look at the times and there's probably some speculation uh, that we may be in for some challenging days in front of us. 
uh, here in America. I know that seems very far-fetched for us to believe right now, uh, but y'all, you know as well as I know, our world changed almost in two weeks' time in March of 2020. If you would have told any of us, I think, in February of 2020, these things are going to happen next month, you probably would have had people say, oh, no, that, that, there's no way that can happen. But our world turned on a dime. And, and those, so we're aware that those things could uh, take place. And so when you look at this, this chapter here, the primary characters that are here, a uh, man by the name of obviously Felix and Tertullus, who was an orator, kind of a, a lawyer, attorney sort, and then the Apostle Paul, the minor characters there, a man by the name of Ananias, who uh, the high priest and his elders, and, uh, and so Tertullus will come along, and he's going to start, and he's going to use his words to try to come against Paul. Now, it appears that Paul is alone, that there's nobody that is there with him. However, uh, just because Luke does not mention that there are people that are not there with him, uh, it probably, uh, there's a number of, of historians that do believe that there were people that Trent, that left uh, the church there in Jerusalem and actually made the trip to Caesarea so that they could provide comfort and relief uh, to the Apostle Paul because while he was under uh, captivity, they, there was a possibility that if they would bribe the guards, then they could bring food to him, they could bring uh, clothing to him, they could help actually sustain him. And those, those Roman soldiers, those, those fellows were on the take. Now, I don't recommend you trying that. If you get a ticket on the way home, uh, that I don't recommend that you do that to Dothan's finest. Uh, but it did happen back in those days that there were bribes and there were people that would bribe to try to get in to help uh, the Apostle Paul. And I, you know, you can look at that ever how you want to look at it, but I, I certainly think that if I had the opportunity to do that to help somebody that I probably would have, have done my part in trying, and I feel that probably most of you here would have, have done the same thing to try to help this Apostle Paul. So it appears uh, that there were some, although when Paul gets up to have to defend himself, he's by himself. There's nobody there with him except for the Lord. And uh, as they start getting into that, here are some things that we find that are very similar. That when you read the Gospels, I don't know if you realize this, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptics. They kind of tell the story. John is more doctrinal uh, in his approach. But the synoptic gospels, they're telling the story. And 25% uh, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke take up the trial that the Lord had to withstand. So whenever you get to the book of Acts, and Luke is writing that, 25% of the book of Acts is telling us the story about where that the Apostle Paul uh, is on trial. He's going to stand trial before two governors, and he's going to stand trial before one Herodian uh, ruler, and that almost mirrors identically the trial that the Lord had to endure and to go through uh, himself. And, and I, I would just say this, that there's times where that, 
life comes along and uh, wherever you're at in life, there's times where you feel like it's breathing literally down your neck. But Isaiah 53, if you go back to that, and you read where that it talks about that he was a suffering Savior and that he was a, a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief to know that the Lord walked through some challenges uh, in his life. And, and yet the promise uh, that whenever Paul stands up in his uh, defense, the promise that you know whenever you stand before uh, these men, don't give really any thought as to what... You're going to say because those things, those words will come uh, to you whenever you are there uh, in front of them. That's uh, in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, and then also in Luke chapter 21 and verses 12 through 15. But but turn back uh, to Acts chapter 6 and and look at verse 10 whenever uh, Stephen is about to preach, and it's probably the longest sermon in the book of Acts that's in Acts chapter 7, where that Stephen stands up and preaches. But look at what, um, let's, let's look in, in verse 8. Luke chapter 6 and verse 8, the Bible says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. And then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And then look at what verse 10 says. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. That right there is an imprint of the Spirit of God is that whenever Stephen began to speak to them that they could not resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. And so what was their response? Well, verse 11 says, Then they suborned men. That means that they bribed or incited or stirred up men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God, and you know the ultimate end of Stephen. So know this, that it's not every time that the Lord chooses to get people out of tight situations. It cost Stephen his life, and it would ultimately cost Paul his life uh, as well. And yet uh, we read about it. So let's look at Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 9, and let's look at Tertullus, this prosecutor. And after five days, Ananias the high priest descended with the elders with a certain orator named Tertullus who informed the governor against Paul. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness, notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. We have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition, among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took 
and would have judged according to our law, but the chief captain Lysias came upon us and with great violence took him out of our, away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. And so this prosecutor, this, this man named Tertullus, uh, notice he, he comes across and he starts his accusations against the Apostle Paul. Now, as we look at it and unfold it, we're going to realize that everything that he has to say is baseless and has no merit whatsoever. There, there's no, no thought. And, and whenever I read that part where it said that he accused uh, the Apostle uh, Paul, that, that kind of again reminds me of what, what's, the, what's the, the devil, his goal, is he is an accuser of the brethren. And so it is that here is this man that he is breathing out these things. And, and the pattern of evil that we see here uh, is, is pretty much uh, in the way that some things operate uh, even today. Look at Romans chapter 16 and verse 18. Here is what Paul uh, writes. Uh, Romans chapter 16 and verse 18 I'll tell you what, let's back up to verse 17. Now he's talking about in the church, and uh, here's, here's what he says. He said, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. And then here's what he says. He says, For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Okay? So they use good words, fair speeches, enticing words. That's exactly what Tertullus does. He comes along and he starts using these words. He draws Felix in. He starts with flattery, talking about how incredible and fantastic that Felix is and knowing that that's not the truth and yet he's drawing him in. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 4 because again, here's what Paul is saying. Paul is, is talking to the church, the early apostolic churches, the one at Rome and then the one at Colossae. Look in, in Colossians chapter 2 and look in verse uh, 4. Uh, here's, here's what he says. He says, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. He goes on. He said, For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Here's what he's saying. He's, he's kind of, let's read between the lines a little bit. He's saying, I know this, that in my absence there will be people that will come in and they will try to beguile you with enticing words. That's exactly what Tertullus was doing. He was a certain orator and what he was doing was he was lodging his complaint against the Apostle Paul right there in the company of Felix. Now, what is clear about this man was that he was familiar with the Roman law and, and that there was such a, a, a hatred 
that Ananias and all his guys had for Paul that they would literally do anything to try to shut down the voice of truth. They wanted to stop it. They wanted to cut it off at the root. In fact, previous chapter tells us that these men were coming in literally to murder uh, the apostle. They, they, those 40 men, they wanted to kill him and now they're still intent on trying to kill the apostle Paul. And so you got this attorney coming up. You got this fella uh, that's talking and he's an attorney, he's an order, he's playing up to the governor. And he's trying to get a legal decision against an innocent man. And that's the whole deal. He wants to kill the Apostle Paul. Um, and so it is that, that you've got these, these four things that are going on here uh, in this public trial. You've got this attorney working, and then you've got the religious leaders that, that are trying to tag him with this conspiracy. They're saying, this man's trying to cause evil. This man's trying to upset the apple cart. He's trying uh, to lead people astray in the name of God. And then he comes along and you see the flattery of an evil man who is Felix. And then you see the slander of a good man whose name is Paul. And so what do, what do, they, what do they say about him? Well, he's an insurrectionist. He's a troublemaker. He disturbs the peace. He's trying to lead a rebellion uh, against the Jews, he or among the Jews, and and uh, that charge was was really over exaggerated because you can read throughout the Book of Acts that a lot of times when all these riots and these revolts were taking place, Paul was not the instigator. He was actually trying to get away from those things, and yet here is Tertullus saying he's trying to stir it up. He's trying to get these things going here. He, and then the other part is that they, they kind of mock him. He's a, he's a ringleader of the Nazarenes. That, that's a rebellious sect. And again, if you get the, you get the tone of what's being said, it's almost like it's a, it's a, a smear. You, you see, he's trying to, yeah, they're, you know, you know all those, those holiness folks. You know, those folks that are, you know, they're, they're just overboard. They're, uh, they're, you know, it was a form of mockery toward those followers. And yet the true church is one that promotes pure doctrine. It promotes salvation. It promotes holiness, peace, goodness, and truth. And yet here was this man trying to cast things in to try to say that, yeah, that's what he is. He's a... We'll get to it here in just a second. He's a pestilent fella. And, um, and then the fourth charge was the one that he was a man that was profaning the temple. And, and that charge is the one that Felix probably didn't have any interest in at all whatsoever. Because the thing is, is that Felix really was listening for criminal charges or for civil charges. And all of these things were basically matters of, if you want to call it that, theology. Godliness. Who is God? What is the church? And, and so on and so forth. But the accusation comes apart. He, oh, he's, a, he's a pestilent fella. Now, now what does that mean? He, he's, a, he's literally a plague. He's a germ. He's an infection. 
Now, have you ever had anybody say that you were a pestilent fella? You was a germ. You're an infection. You're the cause of a plague. You're you're a you know you're you're somebody that's well. That's quite a description coming from an evil man. You've heard that statement before. It's about like calling the is a kettle calling the pot black. Or here's this here's this cruel, crude guy, Tertullus, and he's throwing these accusations. You're a you're a pestilent fella. And yet I'm just telling you now, if you know, if you are even remotely, even have just a just scratch the surface of Paul's epistles, then here's what you understand that the Apostle Paul was one of the greatest men that has ever lived. There, there, there are things that this apostle brings out, and, and I'm just, I'm just, I want to just tell you now, there are times where that you can sit and read one or two or three scriptures that this man has written, and, and you can spend hours thinking, writing, talking about, considering, praying over things that this apostle wrote. And here is this guy saying he's a plague, he's a germ, he's an infection. Now I wonder right now if there was a way if we could pull both of them out from where they're at. I wonder if Tertullus would have a change of heart about what he had to say. This took place somewhere between 52 and 60 A.D. <clears throat> and so what if you could pull this man out and say, Sir... I just wonder, has your thoughts about the Apostle Paul, have, have, they, have they changed? I got a feeling, um, what they call it when you play in golf and you, get a, you take another chance at it because that one didn't work out, or whatever they call that. A what? A mulligan. A mulligan. Uh, say, yeah, I want to take a mulligan on life, but you don't get a mulligan on life. But I got a feeling that if Tertullus was to be brought back, that he probably would have a change of heart about some of the things. And, and yet, look at what the world does. The world exalts those that are filled with sin. And sometimes the eulogies that are presented about these people, they say, oh, they're in a better place. And so I just want to ask you this question here tonight. If that person had no interest at all in the Lord Jesus Christ, had no real interest in the Word, never gave themselves to prayer, or was never involved in a local body of believers, how in the world can you say that that person is going to spend eternity with the Lord if they had no interest whatsoever down here? And yet we hear, you hear that a lot. Oh, they're, 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 in a, they're in a better place. And yet those voices are the ones that are castigating and mocking. Anybody that's got a conservative bent, conservative mind, stands for holiness principles, uh, stands for any kind of, of worshiping and apostolic doctrine and that sort of thing, they want to mock that. Y'all spend too much time at church. You're straining at gnats and swallowing camels. You're opinionated. You're legalistic. You're, you're this, that, or the other. I got a feeling that when people say those kind of things down here, 
that when they get to the other side, that they will have had a change of heart, but you don't get an opportunity to go back and do it again. I think that Tertullus at that point, his kind would criticize God and honor the devil because that's exactly what he was doing. He was castigating the apostle Paul and he was just saying, this, this, guy's, a, this, guy's, a, this guy's a liar. This guy's an insurrectionist. He's a plague. He's a pestilent fellow. But look in Acts chapter 24 and look at verse 10 through 13. The Bible says, Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to, to worship. And they, found ne- and they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. Now, one good thing that can be said about Felix is that he allowed Paul to answer for himself. He said, I'm going to let you respond to the charges here. You, you, can, you can respond. So, Paul, what, what do you have to say? And it, it was basically that Paul's testimony of the truth that whenever he told Felix that, that Felix started realizing there, there's something about this man that I want to get to know more about. And uh, so he starts reasoning out. Now let's, let's look at what Paul had to say. First of all, he said, There's no way I could have created a res- an insurrection because I was only there for 12 days. Now, now what can you do for, in 12 days' time? Uh, there, there's no human way he could have rounded up enough men that would have been able to accomplish this rebellion or insurrection or revolt Uh, There's just no way, because Paul had already been in Caesarea for five days, and that would have cut his time down to seven days to have recruited, planned, and trained these guys to go out and to to do what he was being um, he was being accused of. And so, not only was there a lack of time, there was a lack of disputing, because here's what Paul says. Paul said, uh, "I've been in Jerusalem to worship." not to wrestle and fight with men. And uh, so given that matter in the next part talks about this matter of worship, but but what is my what does it look like whenever I come in here to worship? Is it to come in here and to look around and see what everybody is wearing and uh well, did you see what so and so had on? No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't notice that. And uh, well, did you see? Did you see who was sitting with so and so? No, I don't. I don't guess I noticed who was sitting with so and so. But sometimes that's what people come to church for. They come to to watch others. They come to see what's going on, and. Uh, Oh, Lord, I shouldn't even tell you all this. But anyways, if you've noticed 
I got an idea from Brother Walker, who'll be here in three weeks or so, four weeks to preach. He's a wonderful preacher. And um, <clears throat> so he told me, he said, look, he said, I'll tell you what I do. He said, I've got about five suits, and he said, they're all the same color. <laughs> and he said, that just, that reduces my choices on Sundays of what I have to wear. He said, all I have to do is just figure out what color tie I'm going to wear. And so I, I mulled that over, and, and I started watching down there at Ronnie's men's and boys wear. When they run a sale, I thought, you know what? I'm fixing to start doing that, so I'm. This is my pride talking to y'all right now. So, if y'all seeing me wearing all these dark suits, they're not the same suit. I got four of them, and I'm just shifting them around. So I don't feel sorry for me because I do have more than than one dark suit. But now all I have to worry about is just what color tie I'm going to wear. So, uh, but anyway, so but but sometimes people come to church to watch and to see and to whatever, but. I'm just going to tell you, when we come to church, it ought to be just to come to worship. It's just to walk in here and just like, Lord, your presence. Y'all, this is bad. I enjoyed the prayer meeting tonight. Just felt, just felt good praying. Just felt good just talking to the Lord. Just felt good unburdening the heart. Just felt good praying for people understanding needs that they have in their life. I can't fix them. I wish I could, but I got to pray tonight and I got to talk to the Lord. I enjoyed praying tonight. And uh, I've enjoyed seeing you here tonight. And and I think Sunday night, this place was so many visitors here and guests here and and uh, I, I want to see the Lord do things in their lives. Uh, that that some, some of them, they only come on Christmas and they only come on Easter, but, but Lord, if your spirit could draw them back in and help them to know that something can change in their lives right here, that, that's the purpose. And so, so Paul tells Felix, he said, I, 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 was, I wasn't there to, to dispute with men. I was there to worship. And then the last thing that Paul points out is, is he says that, you know, they don't have any witnesses. There's no way that there are people that they could bring in and say that I was guilty of the charges that they have leveled uh, here against me. His response was straightforward and it was the truth. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 19, The lip of truth shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Proverbs 23, 23, Buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. And then Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 16, These are the things that ye shall do. Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor and execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. And so Paul, he tells them the truth. Now let's look to verse 14 through 16 where he now is going to address this matter of worship. I won't spend a lot of time on it because I kind of spent some with it in that last. But he says this in verse 14, But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which were written in the law and in the prophets. 
and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow that there shall be an, a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. And so Paul comes along. He says, I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm a follower uh, after what some people call the way of heresy. And uh, if you follow the Lord, at some point you're probably going to be accused of being a heretic. Except they may not call you a heretic, but they'll just, oh, you're overboard. You're, you're, too, you're too intense. You're too whatever. You're too... And I remember somebody said, I don't know who said it, but they said, you want to know who's going who's gonna to be caught up in the rapture? Is the folks that are caught up with the Lord right now. If you're caught up with the Lord right now, then you'll be caught up in the rapture. And that's the goal uh, of our lives. And, and yet, he was called, they called the way heresy because Paul was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ had totally upset the apple cart for all of the Jewish system of worship there. And and uh, because they attacked the deity of Christ. And whenever, that's what the devil does. He attacks the deity of Christ. But there are multiple scriptures. I'm going to read some of these to you, but there's a whole lot more than just what I have here that, that speaks to who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he literally is God in flesh. He, he's, he's literally they call it the God-man, if you want to call him that. And 1 Timothy 3.16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. 2 Corinthians 5.19, To wit, or to know, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 through 17, He saith unto them, But whom, ye, whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of of the Godhead bodily. Colossians chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now think about this for a minute. 
45 minutes ago, 50 minutes ago, if you were on your knees or leaning over in your pew or wherever you were at, you were talking to what I've just read to you here. That the Lord Jesus Christ heard what you had to say. That, that right there should encourage us to prayer. You see why the devil don't want you to pray? You see why that we can say sometimes, I think probably all of us can say this, the Spirit's willing, willing but the flesh is weak. That, that's the impediments. That's why that the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, the world, the flesh, and the devil, that's why they try to stop you from praying. Because if they can keep you from praying, what do, they, what do those factors do? They keep you from interacting with this invisible God, the Redeemer of the world. And so Paul comes along and he says, look, he said, I, I'm just telling you now, I'm making a confession. I've got genuine worship for God. And so the second charge did not have any merit. Uh, he worshiped the God of his fathers, was not a new God. He affirmed that he believed what the scriptures had to say. Uh, he believed in the resurrection of the dead for both saint and sinner, which would bring a final judgment to their lives. Now, I want you to make sure you understand this, that all of us are going to stand in judgment somewhere. And for those that are born again, you're going to be at what's called the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. For those that do not respond to the call of the gospel, where are they going to end up? They're going to be at the white throne of judgment and nobody escapes uh, judgment there. And so Paul comes along. He says, I affirm uh, and believe in the resurrection of the dead. And then he talks about that matter of living a life toward having a, a clean conscience. I don't know if you, you've heard me mention this before, but I think everybody ought to have a copy of Nave's Topical Bible. And um, if you've got a copy of it, or if you've got eSword, which is a free download for PCs, and it's on Mac, but it's not as good, or Apple, it's not as good on Apple as it is for PC. But you can download that Nave's Topical Bible. There is a great section in there that talks about the conscience and just expands out in a variety of different directions about your conscience and about how that your conscience is basically the warning system uh, of the soul and it is worth your time to, to look around in that. But let's, let's look at the last uh, segment here in verses 17 through 21 uh, where that he answered his defense and he talked about worship. Now he's going to talk about giving. Look in verse 17. It says, Now after many years... I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult, who ought to have been here before thee, and object if they had ought against me, or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council, except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you of this day. So one of the motivations for Paul to get back to Jerusalem was he wanted to bring his alms and his offerings. And what was he doing? Well, he was bringing them back into so that he could help some of those poor people that was there 
uh, in that church. And I, and I do believe that there uh, can be times where that, uh, that, that we can give, that we can, we can give financially and we can help other people that, that do not have uh, sometimes the financial means that, that others may have. And so Paul, in his defense before Felix, he said that, that's one of the reasons that I was going back to Jerusalem was to give alms and offerings. He said, I wasn't going back to create a, a revolution or a riot. He said, I wasn't going back to try to create havoc that was going to try to unseat you and, and the Roman government. He said, my, the motivation of my life was to come in because I was motivated by doing what was good. And uh, sometimes if you do good, uh, your acts of goodness and kindness will be looked on with suspicion and they will be looked at with uh, marginal thoughts and yet sometimes that would deter people to say, well, if I'm going to be involved in this and everybody's going to question my motive or question whatever, then I'm just not going to do it. And yet the apostle didn't fall into that trap. He said, I, you know what? I'm going to let the things that the Lord is motivating me to do goodness. And I'm just going to do good anyway. And, and I'm just going to say now, we all, we're not giving so we can say, Hey, Lord, did you see that? Because if you're doing that, then that's not the right reason for giving. However, I will tell you this. Every act of goodness and mercy and kindness and goodness that you do here on this earth. It is being recorded. It is being written down. And there's going to come a day whenever the Lord is going to... I put some of my, Sunday, my poor Sunday school teachers, my poor mother-in-law, oh my Lord. Her reward is great in heaven for having to put up with me as a wild little Sunday school kid in her class. And I remember one Sunday morning, we was over in the old house, right up where that light pole used to be. And, and uh, for some reason, whatever reason, uh, Sister Patterson used to bring us pecan sandies every Sunday morning. And for some reason, that Sunday morning, she didn't have pecan sandies, and she had uh, premium crackers. And Lord, I pitched a fit. I was carrying on fussing. She couldn't do anything with me, so she called my my parents, and and I didn't ever fuss about crackers again. And uh, and so whenever you're in there wrestling around with those kids in a Sunday school class, uh, be faithful. Just keep doing what you're supposed to do. Be because I'm gonna tell you this: in the end, it it turns out, and the Lord's got a plan. And just keep, just keep doing good, no matter what obstacles, no matter what challenges you face. Um, I'm on, I'll conclude with this. I don't know, I hadn't listened to this fellow in quite a while, but uh, Michael Card, I don't know if you're familiar with his music. He kind of uh, sings, I don't know how to describe it, maybe ballads. What he'll do is he'll take a book in the Bible and he will study that book, and then he'll write a series of songs on that book. I'll never forget where I was at. It was probably in the fall of 96. I was in the uh, CT department at, at Flowers, and uh, one of the guys in there, 
I leaned up against the counter there. We were waiting to do a biopsy, and uh, they had one of those boom boxes and had a CD playing, and one of the guys had a, and I could tell it was Christian music, so I said, man, what is, what is that, that that I'm listening to? And he said, oh, man, he said, that's Michael Card. And uh, his most famous song is that song he wrote called El Shaddai that Amy Grant um, kind of made famous back in the early 80s. And, uh, but he pulled that CD out and showed it to me. And the title of that CD was called The Unveiling. And there was like 12 songs that he had written on the book of Revelation. And I got hooked in to listening to Michael Card. And uh, he's done that with a lot. He's got one song called The Job Suite. It's about 17 minutes long. It, it just walks through the book of Job. Now it's not a, you know, it's not going to get you up on your feet and, you know, jump, but it's just a, it just makes you think and you think about it and you meditate on what the song is. And there have been several times where Teresa and I and the kids have, have seen Michael Card in concert. Very talented, plays piano, multiple stringed instruments, just very good uh, at what he does. But anyway, he's written books on the Gospels, each one of the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and if you got Apple Music, you can listen to them for free. Um, but in the early, mid-80s or so, he got into the Christian music scene, and apparently there was quite a bit, he writes about this in, in a biography, he's writing about a man by the name of William Lane. And William Lane was a man that taught him at Western Kentucky University uh, at their Bible college seminary. And uh, Will, he, he saw kind of the underbelly of the corruption that was in the Christian music, and it's an industry. They're, they're, they're doing it to make money. And I know there's some blessings that comes out of it, but they're, they're looking at the bottom line. And uh, so Michael Card was in Iowa, and he was playing at a concert, and he called his professor, William Lane, and he said, I'm done, I'm quitting. He said, why, why, why are you quitting? And uh, he said, well, he said, here's, here's the deal. He said, I, I've seen all of that, and he said, I'm just disgusted with it. He said, I'm going to go get a secular job. And uh, he had had some training in forestry and all that and was just going to go do that. Well, William Lane got in his car. I, can't, I think Western Kentucky University is in Bowling Green, Kentucky. He drove all the way from Bowling Green to Iowa. And it was like a 17-hour ride. And he got there about the time the concert started. And they let him in. They told him who told him who he was. So they let him in. Well, he was sitting backstage there uh, with um, when Michael Card come off of the, you know, for the intermission. And when Michael Card saw him, he was so shocked. He said, "I broke down, started crying." He said because he said it, it really was. He said, "I was quitting. I was done." And he said, William Lane come up to him and told him, he said, Michael, he said, you, you, you are such a, a blessing. The songs you write, what you do, uh, he said, it, it's really, you, you don't need to quit. And he said, I'm just going to tell you this. He said, let the excellence of your work be your only form of protest. 
And I have wrote that down multiple times in journals in various places that when you experience challenges, difficulties, you kind of see the dark side is keep that in mind is let the excellence of your work be your only form of protest. Now it's not easy to do. It's difficult to do. But what a powerful thing that that's what the Apostle Paul did. That despite they were trying to tear his reputation apart, trying to kill him, that he just made up in his mind, he said, I'm going to let the excellence of my work be my only form of protest. And I, I just tonight just tell all of us that whenever you get into uh, the grit and the grime of life, let the Lord keep opening doors. Let the Lord close the doors. Follow whatever path and direction that He leads you to. But that's the goal. It's for, for our lives to exalt the Lord and to elevate Him. I want us to stand. And uh, I think I probably went over an hour. Forgive me, it's y'all's fault. Y'all's paying attention. And uh, nobody was slumped over sideways. and So I thank the Lord for that. I appreciate you being here tonight. And uh, just pray the Lord ministers and works in our lives. Let, let's talk to the Lord right now. Lord, I, I love you. I'm thankful, Lord, for your blessings. I'm thankful, Lord, for the goodness, God, that you, Lord, extend into every one of our lives. I pray, Lord, that somehow, God, that there would be a, a desire and willingness, Lord, in our hearts. God, to give ourselves, Lord, to our task and our calling. And Lord, that, that no matter, Jesus, what God, the, the Tertulluses and the Ananiases and the Felixes, Lord, that we come in contact with, Lord, help us to do your will. And I pray, Lord, tonight, God, that you would minister, Lord, to every family, God, that's represented here tonight. Lord, whatever the need may be, whether it is, Lord, physical needs, financial needs, Lord, but the most important part is a God that needs of salvation. And I pray, Lord, that you would minister, God, to every single family, Lord, in this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Lord bless you. And uh, no power supply Friday night. And uh, service at 1 o'clock Sunday afternoon. And uh, Lord bless you.